Here we are right now with chapter number six in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. And this chapter is titled Body Mind Dropped. And the term body mind is used in many different ways. Most common in the New Age paradigm and also in certain meditation practices. And essentially what it is, is an inquiry or a method or an awareness of both the body and the mind. And certain methods can isolate these two things in such a way as to reveal that there is a third component. You have a body and you have a mind and, well, then there's you, which is the thing that's having the having the thing that's having the body. What is having the body? What is having the mind? So that's partly what this chapter is about. This is the sort of basic ABC entrance into what body-mind is. So Treya... Well, they're, they're moving house, but the house moving is delayed in our main plot. And Treya goes on a meditation retreat. And this is a 10-day Vipassana course with SN Goenka. And I believe, I believe he would have still been alive at this time. So there's a good chance she was actually with him in the flesh like the actual real-life person, Goenka. And now what we have is we have the tradition of Goenka, or the sect of Goenka-style Vipassana. So if you go to do a Goenka-style Vipassana, then you'll be watching a video of him, and it will be his words and his instructions. But... He's no longer in the body. He has transcended, as they say. He's dead. So that's a sect within a... I guess you don't really call the different parts of Buddhism denominations. That's more of like a Christian term. But Vipassana is a version of or a denomination of Buddhism. So if you've got the broad category of Buddhism... And then within that, you've got Vipassana. And then within that, you've got Goenka. And she tells us. She writes about her experiences. And it's always interesting to see the subjective description, the personal description of what occurs. And here we're going to be talking about both 
Trey's subjective experience and also the textbook descriptions of meditation and Vipassana. And we're going to get deep. Just a warning. If you haven't figured that out yet, I'm going to I should probably just assume that you know that this is going to get deep. This is going to get it's going to get complicated. We're going to go into all the details. There are a lot more details than just body, mind and witnessing. I hope I didn't give it away too much by saying that. But here we go. What does she say? What did I do on the retreat? She says, I was told to spend 10 to 11 hours a day focusing on my breath, moving in and out of my nostrils, just my breath. And basically, that's Vipassana. That's basically the first big component of it. And you're told to bring yourself back to your breath when your mind strays, or when you get distracted, or when an emotion comes up, or when you have a crick in the neck, to practice, to come back. You're told to just focus your awareness. And after a certain amount of time, and after a certain amount of progress in this, you're told to then turn this awareness onto the body. And those are the two large components of Vipassana. First step, watching the breath to build an an attention, a point of attention, and then to move that attention over the body. So for the first several days, she says, she was obsessing about eye pains and headaches. And that's pretty frightening for Treya because she has images of a cancer reoccurrence happening all the time. She has fears of coming back and actually killing her. Fears of her leaving Ken, not being able to live with Ken. And there's a lot of things that can come up and distract you when you're on a Vipassana retreat. So many things that happen when you're simply trying to watch the breath because it comes a, becomes a point of contrast it becomes a point of revealing all that is within you which normally is hiding in plain sight but when you're always telling yourself over and over again come back to the breath come back to the breath concentrate on the breath then anything without that anything outside of that becomes more obvious and she says it's a difficult struggle it's a difficult struggle but after some time this point of awareness starts to seem like a flashlight like a beam of light so if you can imagine yourself walking around with a torch a flashlight and you can move it around in different angles and it shines onto certain parts of your world, well, the same sort of dynamic occurs inside. And then she became more aware of the always existent background of this focal awareness. So we're starting to see a complexion opening up, a complexity opening up, which is the difference between 
attention, like the flashlight, and awareness, which is sort of just beyond the boundaries of where the flashlight reveals what it's placed on or what it's drawn to. So you can imagine that if you're in the dark, then the flashlight is your attention. And your awareness is, well, everything that's around in your environment. And you can learn to start to sense your environment beyond just your attention. And after some time, she became very aware of the role of attention and how that determined her state. And with more practice, she could simply witness her sensations. And when that happened, she felt calm, balanced, and in equanimity. And she also found that she should she could judge and fear her sensations. And in that case, she felt anxiety and sometimes panic. So this is a difference that is learnt by seeing it over and over again, by drawing your attention back to it over and over again. The difference between simply watching allowing something to arise and fall, or judging it and reacting it. And this is a back and forth. This is why Vipassana courses are 10 10 days long. Because we normally go in and say, well, okay, I need to find this point of attention, but there's a cloud of distractions. There's a cloud of back and forths. And this is even the case for Treya. Now, at this stage, she's done about five. I think this is her fifth 10-day course. So she's not exactly a novice. She's not exactly a beginner. She's aware of the technique. She's done some headway on this. And yet still, she's going in and she's learning again the difference between witnessing without judging and remaining in equanimity or judging and fearing. The sensations. And then she becomes aware of things that she was never aware of before, like thoughts and ideas and concepts, words, images, stray sensations, random bits of stories that emerge and fade into awareness. She becomes aware of these things that she tells herself, of automatically wanted to move whenever her position gets a little bit uncomfortable. So that's really something, because you can say, just watch, but then if your legs or your neck or something gets uncomfortable, well, then you move your body to get more comfortable. But that's a reaction. So learning to watch the discomfort, and it is pretty pretty difficult to sit cross-legged for 11 hours on a cushion without a backrest, with your eyes closed doing nothing. There's a lot of nooks and crannies that happen in your bones and in your bum and in your legs and in your hands and shoulders when you're doing that. Now, some people from certain cultural backgrounds can do that naturally. They've got the strength of their culture behind them. But for us common Westerners, it's very difficult to sit cross-legged 
on the floor with a pillow. And that can lead to more struggle because then you get uncomfortable and you react. And then the reaction turns into more uncomfort, discomfort, and then you realize you've forgotten the technique and then you're lost and then you're trying to get back, but you're also uncomfortable. And it just becomes this big ball and you're sitting there and this, oh, this sort of thing. And then she's also got the desire to progress in the technique. Like, oh, I really want to get good. I want to be a good student. I want to make sure I'm doing it right. I want to achieve a high sense of attention. I want to have a very good sense of attention. <laughs> and of course, this is just another another game, another tangle. Another thing that is a craving or an aversion. A craving for a, a success in the technique or an aversion of being the the one left out or the failure in the class. And gradually this goes back and forth according to the instructions until she can watch all of this interactivity with more and more balance. Like the edge of willful effort with no attachment to results. And after about five days or so, she's actually making some progress and she is differentiating these parts within her. And then there are moments when her entire body seems like nothing but vibration. So now this is an amazing feeling, a good feeling, like the night they were first together. We're talking about the Kundalini energy awakening when Treya and Ken first met. And her temptation is, well, to think about it, to conceptualize it, or to talk to herself about what's happening. And really, this is just more chatter of the mind, which is a distraction from what's occurring. And that inner mind, well, there's a lot in that, that chattering, that talking. She even finds herself talking to God, like bargaining, and saying things like, well, just let me have 10 years to live with Ken. How happy she would be to reach 50 even. How young that sounds, she says. And that's really tricky, because you've got all these things overhanging you. You've got cancer hanging over you. And there might actually be something wrong. At one point, she's even thinking, oh, maybe I should end this course. Maybe I need to go and see a doctor. Is this witnessing, is this equanimity actually going to cause some problem? Am I going to miss out on an early detection of cancer if I push through with this? So that's a big knot to untangle. That's a big mind trip to encounter when you're on a meditation course. Most people don't have these sorts of issues. Most people go into these meditation retreats with a, a relatively stable life. You have a relatively strong understanding of how your life's going and there's not too many big issues. And then she thinks, well, maybe if she goes 
it will be better for Ken. Maybe if she dies, it will be a good thing for Ken. Because he'll be less dependent. Now, isn't that just a tough thought to wrestle with? I mean, think about her life. She's been so independent, so strong. Never needed anyone. Always true to herself. And then she finds this amazing man. The perfect match and they're madly in love. And it would seem like the perfect opportunity for her independence to flower. And for her to share her inner treasures. Her sense of courage, her sense of confidence. And then all of a sudden she gets struck by cancer. And she has to depend on him. She has to share her worries with him. She can't just hide her anxieties. She has to be honest about it. And of course there's just the practical side. The physical stuff that she needs help with. Yes, it's a hard lot that she's got with this one. And then there's other thoughts as well, which aren't quite as heavy, where she calls it the trickster that comes in. And the trickster is the mind which sort of says, well, we're moving to this new house, so what's the colour of the carpet? And will that work with the colour of this kind of table? Or can we use this kind of wood for the furniture? Oh, yes. And what about another closet in the bedroom? And what about this kind of furniture or this kind of lamping, lamplight or lighting? And the curtains? What about the curtains? Oh, yes. And she's sort of thinking there like, sitting there thinking like, wow, this is great. Oh, I love to, yes, I'll munch on that for some time. That's a really good thought. How exciting we're moving to a new house and there's things to work out. So there's always also the temptation to just enjoy thinking instead of witnessing it. And she says that by day five, she can almost completely let go and simply witness. And when you witness, the emotions and thoughts are still there, but she is aware of them. These strong, pleasurable, almost painfully blissful energies come back, but she is still aware of them. She's not identified with them. And the body feels like one piece rather than a collection of parts. And this continues for the next few days until day nine. She notices that whenever a cancer image comes up, she doesn't react. It doesn't frighten her. And even if fear comes up, she can witness the fear. Equanimity Free flow, clear observation remains with her throughout day 10. So 
So that's the effect that she had. Well, that was the effect that the course had for her in this 10-day retreat. So that she was be able to step back and allow these things within her, her worries, her emotions, her thoughts, become more of something that arises and falls, passing, passing away. And then she comes back and she notices one morning in the shower that there are two bumps under her right breast. And Ken takes a look and they say, well, this doesn't look good. They could be insect bites, but it's probably best we go see the doctor. So the doctor goes over them, sees what's happening, and he says, well, this could be something else, but it's best we have them removed. So they get booked in for surgery the following day or the day after. Very soon they're booked in for surgery. And on the drive home, well, Treya is quite equanimous. She's quite peaceful. She's okay with it. And it's not like the same worrying that it, that it was before. So she's changed. She's found something deeper. And they start up a bit of a conversation. And it turns out that Treya really wants to talk about meditation with Ken. And she sort of just starts, you know, putting out some things putting out some stories and Ken picks up on this and he realizes that well she's up for a conversation and they can either talk about their worries of cancer and the doom and gloom or what they're going to do or they can have a nice conversation about meditation so he goes along with it And so here's what Ken says and Treya says as they talk about meditation. And fundamentally, you have to trust your own experience. And in this sense, it comes back to the scientific nature of meditation. Because if you distrust your own experience, then you must also distrust even your capacity to distrust, since that is also an experience. And Treya goes on to describe, well, some difference between surrendering to divine will and letting go. And that's the difference between submitting to a master or doing it under your own will. And Ken says, well, this is what the Japanese Buddhists call self-power versus other power. So one 
can rely strictly on one's own powers of concentration and awareness, go it alone, do it in your own way, and break through the ego into a larger identity. Or you can rely on God or simply surrender. So it's two extremes. You have to say, I can do it, I can do it very, very strongly. Or you have to say, I can't do it. It's impossible. There's no in-between. And yet somehow they both work. They both break out of the smaller self-sense into a larger one. And you can say, well, where does ego come into this? And ego, well, ego is a pretty funny word because the ego is the self-sense. The ego is the thing that's trying to break you out. And you can say, well, is it just my ego that is trying to do the breaking out? And in a sense, yes. The ego is breaking out of itself. But the point is that ego is not, not a real subject. It's still another object. It's still only a part. So once you see it as isolated from the whole, then there's another awareness that you have which is larger. And that sense of the ego being smaller and witnessing is known as, well, the seer or the knower. Or the witness. So the witness with capital W is what we call the thing that is seeing the thoughts arising and falling, the feelings, thoughts, the feelings and emotions rising and falling. And also what you're identified with. It's who you are. So it's not only a momentarily experience, uh, like a momentary peak experience in meditation, but after time, those peaks become more, more and more frequent until you're actually centered there. And it's actually who you are. And you say, well, this is who I am. And Ken's actually just written a book about this called Transformations of Consciousness. So he centered on the development of the witness and the stages of mistaken identity that the witness goes through before it awakens to its own true nature. So we're not talking about just one step here. We're not talking about just falling into the witness because once the witness falls into something and these objects are within a field of awareness these objects that were once considered to be all of what you are like your whole identity a la ego well then this new field that the witness is in is also just another object it's a mistaken identity so how many steps do we have in this? How many different points are there? And, well, it goes from matter to body to mind to soul to spirit. And those are the five levels that Ken talks about. And in the perennial philosophy, which we talked about last chapter, well, <clears throat> there are actually several levels 
and each sort of system has different amounts of levels, different gradients to it. So some have only three levels, some have dozens, and so on. But broadly speaking, and, and even Wilbur himself has about a few dozen in his main matrix, but for the purposes of this conversation, he just talks about matter, body, mind, soul, and spirit. And this is known as the great chain of being. So this term, the great chain of being, is what we use to broadly call all of the levels. Now, you need to understand that there is a difference in the meaning being in the phrase the great chain of being as compared to being and doing in terms of masculine and feminine. So when we talk about the great chain of being, we talk about the cosmic being. So the chair is being the chair, the planet is being the planet, the stars are being stars, and you are being you, and so on. And there's actually a book, there's a very famous book, well, I don't know if it's famous, but what should we say? We should say it's a book. It's a book that Wilbur has referenced multiple times before, not here, but in his other work. And it's by Arthur Lovejoy. And the book title is The Great Chain of Being. So that's something for further reading. And I actually did have a look at it. And it's quite, it's quite dense. It's quite astonishing sometimes to to actually go and follow up the leads or the references that Wilbur makes is, is sometimes a little bit daunting, such as it is with this Arthur Lovejoy book, because it's very high philosophy and the comparisons and the references are very far-ranging, very specific and rather complex so, essentially, what Lovejoy is saying in The Great Chain of Being, oh, look at me, I'm actually going to try and sum it up. I don't believe I'm going to even attempt to do this. Is, this. is this too much? Give me a go at it. He's basically saying that there are these ideas which, in different times are called different things. But they're essentially the same. And the only way you can really get a sense of what the idea is, is by comparing the differences between the cultures and the times and how they talk about them, and then creating their own words for them. So these broad levels of consciousness, matter, body, mind, soul, and spirit, have a whole array of complexes to them. And they're spoken about in different ways, in different times. So that is essentially a very rough 
introduction to the great chain of being. It's the, it's the broadest levels of development that humans go through. So if we've got now paradigms and we've got the perennial philosophy, so now we have a, a further dimension, which is levels. So paradigms, perennial philosophy, and levels. And this just adds to our picture. And the levels we call, well, the great chain of being. And these levels, well, they're seen in the development of meditation. Because the witness, or the real self, starts out identified with the material self. So you start with your body. Then your body is seen by your mental self. So your mind has a body. And then your mind is seen by your soul. So your soul has a mind. You are not your thoughts. Your thoughts are just there. And then your soul finally awakens to its true nature as spirit. So the witness is the thing that is very subtly behind all of those at every stage. And this is all what the great chain of being is. This is all what you can find within your own being. And the idea of, well, the other idea is that there's one of everything. And another reference he makes is to Telehardish Chandran. And just like if you go and look up the great chain of being, and you look up this philosopher, Prairie Tele, t- Telehard de, de Chandran, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he's a Jesuit priest and geologist, and he took part in the discovery of the Pecking Man, who was a Homo erectus, or a junior, a junior version of Homo erectus from 750,000 years ago. And he also helped to develop the noosphere, the theory of the noosphere, which is an important part of integral theory. And it's basically the whole world of images, dreams, and thoughts. And he also has this idea of the omega point. So that's the belief that everything in the universe is fated to this push towards a final point of unification. So this one, you see that there's, just. I'm just trying to illustrate that you get this sense of we're going through these descriptions and Wilbur is making these little sort of dropping names or these little stories or these little quotes. But behind that is an extremely interesting, extremely complex wealth of ideas and concepts and principles of understanding reality, whether it be a philosopher or a spiritual teacher or a religious figure from history. So try to just appreciate how dense this is. 
try to appreciate how much there is in this story, in this conversation. So the body is of matter. The mind is aware of the body. The soul is aware of the mind. And the spirit is aware of the soul. And each step is an increase in awareness. It has a wider and wider sense of identity. And that as a theory, well, it's a bit, it's a bit full of mind, isn't it? It's a bit hard to wrap your mind around. But experientially, it's quite easy because this is exactly what Treya was doing on her meditation retreat. And then the other component of all this is the neuroses or the things that can go wrong. And Wilbur in his book, like he discusses, this book that he's just done, Transformations of Consciousness, he puts in the different types of neuroses at different levels. So at level one, you have psychosis, like schizophrenia, schizophrenia, and then there's borderline conditions like narcissism and general neuroses. But most therapy does not deal with the higher stages of neuroses. So it's really only the body-mind that has the most common neuroses, and those higher-level ones are a little bit more rare, a little bit more tricky to pin down. So that's another big thesis of Wilbur's, another big sort of hypothesis is that you need to have the correct solution or the correct therapy for the right level of where your neurosis is at. Is your problem a problem of the mind? Or is it a problem of the emotions? Or is it a problem of the body? And is it a matter of identifying it to a higher stage? Or is it a matter of fixing the stage you're at? And that's what's so important about indexing and correctly categorizing all of the therapies and psychologies. So the thing of the witness, you could say that if we come back to where this conversation started, which is breaking into the witness or just watching where things rise and fall, that's actually not the highest point. It's not what spirit is. That's not what this oneness is. Now, it is one of the highest levels because it's of the soul, but it's not the final barrier. So in other words, there is still a very subtle form of subject-object dualism in the witness. The witness is a huge step, and it's very important. It's necessarily necessary. You can't leave it out, but it's not ultimate. And there's a story of Ken Wilbur. That's not shared here, but in elsewhere. There's a story of Ken Wilbur who's training himself to learn the witness and he's working on his witnessing work he's working on his witnessing skills and trying again and again to identify with a larger and larger 
self-sense and he's sitting in meditation and his teacher, his Zen teacher, sort of creeps up behind him and then whispers in his ear, the witness is the ego's last defense. And at that point, he broke into the spirit, the oneness. And that's a very powerful story. It's a very interesting occurrence to have happen to you. And it says something about these traditions, such as Zen, which is that they are aware of these levels. And they can see when students are at certain points and what students need. And it's not that the the Zen master would have been guessing. The Zen master would have been working with Ken. They would have been known to him for some time. And he would have been reporting back, well, this is my, these are my experiences. This is what's happening. This is what I'm going for. So the trick is you just want to say, like, if, if you're a beginner meditation, if you're just starting out with meditation and you get all this and you say, okay, well, I've got money behind money, I've got body, mind, soul, and spirit, and uh, I just want to break into the big spirit, but I need to learn the witness, then it can be a bit too much because you have to go through the steps. You have to do the little baby steps. And it doesn't work to just say, oh, I just want to break in. I just want to have the big spirit. I just want to find the big self. That doesn't work. We all go through the different stages. We all have varying degrees of steps on the path. And really, this is why you learn a traditional meditation. It's because you see that there's this these layers and you're not going to be able to just jump around all of them straight away. So you say, well, okay, give me a tradition. Give me a known, proven method which will take me through them step by step. And that's why you go on a meditation retreat because it begins with one level very slowly, very clearly, points out some of the traps and then moves to the next level. And then there is more instructions, and you take your time, and then more traps are laid out. And then we have the end of the chapter, which is Ken and Treya, sort of just in their house, after having this massive conversation. And it is quite a conversation to have with your partner. I mean, this is the sort of stuff they talk about. This is the sort of stuff they get along on. So it's good that they have something to talk so much about. And it's good that they are very much open and familiar with these ideas. They have a lot of shared understanding with these ideas, which makes them very close makes them very close in their conceptual relationship. And Ken's sort of like, okay, well, it's getting late, so I'll cook some spaghetti. 
and there's a moment of quiet and all of a sudden the conversation topic that hasn't been said starts to fill the air. And Treya looks up at Ken as she's sitting there and she says, I'm determined not to let myself or anyone else make me feel guilty or embarrassed about this. And that's really something. That's really something to say. To be given a new resolve about guilt and embarrassment in relation to all the people in your life is a powerful step. And her newfound equanimity, her newfound witnessing skills, and her new resolve really shines forth in that one statement. And it really shows the hint of what's to come when she has these two lumps removed from surgery. So to summarize, the body-mind dropped is when you identify with something larger with a larger awareness. And the witness is the thing that opens you up from object to subject. And yet, the witness is not the final frontier. It's not the final death. Because the only thing that's ultimate is self, with a capital S, or the one, the all, or Brahman, or Godhead. And that's chapter five, or chapter six, sorry. Still getting my chapters mixed up. The next chapter is chapter seven, which titled, which is titled, my life had twisted suddenly. So we'll be back very soon with the next chapter. And that's all I have to say for now.